can do that. JTAX. Clearing it hot, making it rain, and bringing the boom boom. Yeah, so, um, yeah, my name's Tom. My name's Tom. I, uh, prior U.S. Uh, Air Force TACP, JTAC qualified, of course. I uh, spent about 10 years active duty overall. And uh, after that, I decided to leave the military and then uh, just did the whole contracting gig. So I spent a lot of, a lot of different positions uh, throughout the United States, of course, and multiple deployments uh, to Iraq and Afghanistan. Did a lot of train, training events as well down in the Philippines, uh, like Southeast Asia type of stuff. But uh, yeah, I'm like that. This is a pretty awesome community, awesome, uh, awesome career to be a part of right now. It's, uh, it's expanding quite a lot, I would say, within the last 20 years. 20 years. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, we're sitting on a, on a unique sort of bubble, and I'm really glad that I'm getting to speak to all these people and tell these stories. Mate, I just, uh, I like to caveat everything that everyone's opinion on here is their own and not that of any organization. Um, Tom, tell us a little bit about sort of where you came from, where you grew up, what your family looks like back at home, sort of school and that, up until the point where, you know, you actually sign the dotted line and, and join up. Yeah. All right. So I, uh, I grew up originally in uh, upstate New York, south of Buffalo, and uh, lived there for about 11 years. My, mom, uh, my mom's job transferred me and my sister down to, uh, down to the south in North Carolina. So I was 11 years in New York, and I spent the other 11 years in North Carolina. So I'm, I'm happy you have half Yankee, half mm. And um, from there, uh, I was 22 years old, and that's whenever I decided to, to join the military. So I was actually, uh, looking back on it now, I was around 20. I had a buddy of mine that I was in high school with, um, was U.S. Air Force. He was an electrician. And uh, I didn't really know a whole lot about, um, <clears throat> really about the military. I thought everyone shot a gun. You know, I thought everyone was like combat arms type of thing. Yeah. I didn't really know that they had all these different types of careers in the military or what. Mm -hmm. And they come from a military background, of course. Um, I have probably a great uncle or whatnot that was in some war, but you know, it's not really something that was really integrated with my family uh, or the lineage of my family. So from there, uh, he kind of let me know. He's like, hey, there's a lot of jobs that you can do. It's not, you know, you might just hear about the Navy SEALs, whatnot, all these different, you know, cool guy jobs, but the Air Force also offers um, something if you are looking for combat, and the quality of life is pretty exceptional compared to the other branches. So, of course, I have a biased opinion on <laughs> different branches. And, um, I have other buddies, of course, uh, throughout high school that joined the military, you know, um, after 9-11 stuff, watched them in the Marine Corps, in the Army, and so forth, and um, a lot of their perception on, I guess, the different branches as well when it comes to quality of life the ladies, um, the, the overall, just the lifestyle, if you're looking to make it a long-term commitment, which I didn't know if I was going to do or not do, um, they were like, hey, Air Force, go Air Force. Um, and, you know, I guess at the end of the day, uh, if, you do, if you volunteer for a special type of job, kind of like whatever I did, um, to fall back on something, if you, if you absolutely had to, you know, do medical or something, at least you're you know, at least you'll be taken care of, I guess, in a, in a better fit or a better, a better job opposed to being on a submarine or something like that. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I'll be stuck on some air somewhere living this posh life. Yeah, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Because, like, none of those people would say that out loud in a public space. But, you know what I mean? When they're one-on-one -on -one with a buddy, they're like, yeah, go join the Air Force. It's, that's, uh, that's, mm -hmm. that's funny. But, okay, so yeah. obviously you've got those influences around you, but it still takes some sort of driver to, like, send you in and sign to serve. Can yeah. you remember making the decision yeah, so, yourself? 
Yeah, I actually made, I made the decision myself. Um, I actually had, other than my father, I had a, a lot of pushback from my family, uh, surprisingly. Um, just because I had a decent job, I was working for a telecommunications company. Um, I was also doing like the whole personal training thing. I was doing somewhat well with that, but I got forced, you know, through the company, I got forced into a manager type of role and I was working just a ton of hours and not really getting a whole lot of, out of a whole lot, lot out of it. And um, wasn't really going a whole, a whole like anywhere, um, partying a lot, drinking a lot, kind of going down a, a long, uh, dark route, I guess you would say especially someone that's 20 to 22, uh, you know, you have these friends that you're, you're hanging out with, party with all the time. And you think that those are your boys, but you know, that's, that's all it is, is just drinking buddies. And I, um, I kind of just had like this, I don't know, like this image in my head of, you know, I want to do something different. And I can I kind of was always um, into the, the military type of movies. I always liked watching like martial art movies and stuff growing up, you know, so I always had something that was like kind of strive me towards, I guess, being a badass if, uh, if that's the concept, you know? So Going from there, my father was really the big, the big driver. He was a big time, he was a stud. He was a big time athlete um, in American football, and um, he's all, you know, he's he's always telling me never to give up. Uh, you know, work your ass off. Was, everything to me has always been about work. Uh, it's all, it's honestly all I know. I've been working since I was fourteen. Um, so not because I had to, but just, just by choice. Um, yeah. And since fourteen, I have I've had zero. I've had zero gaps in, in unemployment, I guess you would say. So I've, I've worked my entire life. I'm 34 now. So um, that's all I really know. But um, yeah, with, a, with the rest of the family, they're like, oh, it's the military. You know, um, you know they would say things like, um, are you not smart enough to go to, to go to college? It's like, well, why would I go to college? Yeah, seriously. It's like, why would I go to college and pay for it and go into debt over that when I can, when I can you know, do the military, something I'm really passionate about? And, um, and also, you know, further my education, that's really what's important to me. Um, so yeah, I just kind of, just kind of shunned the whole thing. Just did my own thing, really. Yeah, um, that's great. I did have, I, yeah, I, I will say though, I had a really, I had a really difficult time, believe it or not, getting in. Um, okay. when I went down to, uh, when I went down to the, the MEP station is what we call it. Um, go down to the MEP station after you go through a recruiter, the MEP station is like the medical clearance facility, basically. And, uh. When I went down there, um, when I was at the, um, when, when I was, when I was talking to a recruiter, my, my mom actually came with me and, um, I had some issues before that, uh, not with drugs, but with actually medical stuff. And I, I broken my shoulder multiple times. I actually had a, a shatter in my lower vertebrae, um, L1 through L4, um, when I was younger and, you know, she's bringing all this stuff up and she's like, Oh my, you know, my, my Thomas, you know, he's, He's such a, he's such a great, you know, great boy. He, you know, he's an awesome athlete and he had all these problems, but he's always recovering, done really well. And it actually screwed me over Yeah, yeah. Um, by a couple of years. Because, yeah. Because the, they, the recruiter saw it as I'm like, I look healthy at the time, but he's like, Oh God, that's a huge liability possibly. And he had to, he had to document everything again. I didn't know really what had come out of that, but what forced, what basically forced that force to happen was, I had to leave North Carolina after trying to get in for about a year and a half. Um, and my recruiter told me, he's like, listen, dude, he's like, you're not going to get in. Uh, he's like, it doesn't matter what branch. He's like, the MEPS recruiter, the MEPS doctor here won't even prove to get in um, because of your medical history. And I, I could do like 51 arm push-ups, and I was, a, I was in really good shape. And um, I, was, I was a competitive power lifter at the time as well, um, like lifting heavy weights and stuff. And uh, he was like, the only other option you have is to go through a different MEPS recruiter, another another medical doctor. 
um, and had the Sergeant General basically sign you off, like get a medical waiver. And so I, I flew back up to New York, uh, stayed with my father for about six months, and then um, I got in. So that's really kind of how it led up to that point. It was a long process, but I kind of just had, you know, saw the light at the end of the tunnel. So Yeah. So what puts you in the pipeline? What Did you go for that straight off the bat or did you meet someone once you yeah. were in? Yeah, I met someone when I was in. So the way it worked, actually, I um, the Air Force offered uh, what was initially sold to me, I guess, through the recruiter was uh, becoming a SEER instructor, um, survival evade resistant escape. Um, I didn't really understand the instructor role. I just I just understood the whole SEER portion. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, you can go in all, in all these austere environments, you know, and survive. And I, again, I had no, I was completely clueless. <laughs> and um, when I... Uh, and I had a contract for that. I had to go through like additional training, you know, and pass all these tests. And I, I passed the test and I went through um, and all the way up to basic training. I had that contract. Well, then I chose to basically give up the contract um, because they had, they had the option for me to go in the military sooner than when the contract was allowing me. So I was like, well, dude, I've been trying for two years. I want to get there in there as quick as possible. So I went in what they call open general. So I basically, yeah. I, they just threw me in, you know, you have a pocket of, of careers that you have an option for. And so I get there and the Air Force actually gave me the job um, or the job for air traffic control. <laughs> so it would have been, it would actually been a pretty good, pretty good gig if I would have stuck through that too, you know? Yeah. So, um, but that was in basic training. And then we had, we had recruiters for all the special jobs, basically come, come around to all the, all the different teams, you know, the basic training teams and stuff. And um one of our guys was the tat p guy and uh this guy kind of looked like you know he wasn't really following in regulations you know didn't really didn't really care i guess you know he's just i'm mean, just a cool just it's a cool dude you know really chill really laid back and um especially in basic you kind of seeing like every everything's so rigid and so tense and this guy's just like in the heat of all that this guy's like just cool calm and collective he's like hey he's like you know do you want to He's like, do you want to spend, you know, the four, four to ten years or whatnot of of your life, you know, just sitting behind a desk? Do you want to just go blow shit up? I was like, dude, I want to go blow shit up. So <laughs> <laughs> they get you every so, time. Oh, dude, yeah. All you gotta say is, like, you know, blow things up, and dude, you're all over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that was it, and then um, I, I was sold in, and uh, there was only me and one other one other other buddy of mine in my um my basic training class, and uh, we both went the TAC-P route and. Um, from there on, it was it was golden. So, so obviously you uh, you go through the tap P route, and uh, we could probably spend uh, quite a bit of time talking about that. But let's let's sort of like jump forward into your career. What uh, what's it look like coming out the other end of that? Where do you head off to, and how quickly do you cycle into the the operational cycle? Yeah. So basically, when you go through the schoolhouse, uh, the Tappy schoolhouse, um, you don't come out of it fully JTAC qualified. Now uh, things have obviously changed within the career field, and now it's like as soon as you're done with the pipeline, um, you're fully JTAC qualified. But the pipeline now is obviously shifted. Um, I've been out of it for a couple of years now, but I, you know, I ties back, you know, back home. I kind of have an idea of how that works. So, but for me, basically, you get out and um, you have basically six. They they give you about six to nine months to pretty much prepare um, to deploy is really what it comes down to. Um, you don't deploy as a fully uh, qualified JTAC. You're basically a JTAC apprentice. And um, and so I deployed uh, within a year of being at my first duty station in Hawaii. Uh, and I deployed to Iraq. And uh, that was, I was actually there for um, the transition from Operation Iraqi Freedom to New Dawn. So it was like literally half and half. Um, 
although New Dawn was kind of like the peacetime, you know, the peacekeeping thing, you know, the transition to kind of hand off things. Um, we were still doing, well, actually, from what my understanding, we were doing a lot more operations than whenever I was physically there for the three months for our Iraqi freedom. Yeah. Um, but they didn't really, the media didn't really push that agenda, you know, they didn't really push that. But we were, uh, we were controlling a lot and still, uh, still dro dropping quite a bit. Yeah. So, so I, you, I didn't know. Um, yeah, so I, I, didn't, I didn't. Through, sorry, man. You're a slight no, delay. Yeah, so I I didn't drop obviously um being a being an apprentice, but I got to over the shoulder a lot. Um, basically I had a guy behind me that I I do everything. He would just say clear hot, you know, because I was the apprentice. I control the aircraft, and he just basically say clear hot because of the whole legality thing. And then um, of course when it comes to the helos, like we have CCA back home, which a majority of other uh, countries don't really have. But the CCA is like the Army version of the CCA five line, all that stuff, and uh. Yeah, well, that, that doesn't require J type qualification. I'll always utilize that a lot as well. So no issue yeah. there. So you come back off your first tour. Obviously, Hawaii. How how's that as a first duty station? Dude, <laughs> Hawaii was pretty awesome. So yeah, Hawaii was awesome. The reason why it was so cool is because um, honestly, since I was probably like 15 years old, I always had a dream to live in Hawaii. Um, my, you know, whenever I went to the taxi schoolhouse at the time, it's changed now, but it wasn't it wasn't Hawaii. Uh, sorry, Florida. It was like Ross at Pensacola. And um, I'm like, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm there for like, you know, eight months, a little bit over eight months. And I'm, I'm in Florida and uh, it's beautiful there as well, right down the Emerald Coast. And then uh, from there, like I was not even in the tactical schoolhouse for like less than a month. And they're like, I got orders dropped from my first duty station, you know, and there was still a possibility that I'd either pass or fail. I saw Hawaii and oh, dude, it was, <laughs> it was game on. It was like, all right, yeah, nothing's going to stop me now, no matter what. Yeah, that's some good motivation right there. Yeah. So you're uh, obviously you're back in Hawaii and stuff like that, and, and sort of your apprenticeship is uh, is done, done with a sort of a baptism of fire, going straight out on operations and, and obviously doing it out there. How quickly yep. do you turn around then, become a JTAC and get to go again? Yep. So on average at the time, it took roughly about two and a half years, and I was right at about two years to become fully qualified as a JTAC. Um, the reason why I was probably ahead of the curve by maybe six months was because of, um, I was, since I was in Hawaii, that's PACAP, Pacific Air Force. And at the time, the operation tempo was extremely high. Um, we, uh, we didn't really keep a dwell time is what we call it, like, let's say six months on, six months off. We were, dudes were going basically past that dwell just to keep up with the op tempo. And, uh, well, either way, it was, it was, I don't know if that was from a leadership thing that there's like, hey, we're going to take all these deployments or whatnot. Um, it's kind of out of my reach. Um, but from my understanding, it's just like, like, we were just, we were pretty much drenched with just constant deployment. So um, with that, though, they kind of forced me through um, a quicker path, I guess you would say, um, to become JTAC qualified. And I went to JTAC, what, what we call JTAC QC or JTAC qualification course. Um, so I went, I went, I went to that. And uh, that was like right at two years, got through that and uh, not even, I got back from that and I had about a week and a half to basically pass my first JTAC eval. And then a half a week after that, I deployed as a fully qualified JTAC. So it was, it was basically like, you're going to get this done. <laughs> you're going to make this happen, dude. And you're going to go. Because if not, then someone else, you know, they, they screw up their all time, you know, so it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you get you, you're in a in a rapid cycle there. I think that time of our lives, all, all of us were like rocking and rolling. And when you were given an, an option, you were always like jumping forward and like cutting that dwell time. Um, yeah, exactly. So you obviously you go out on your second tour. 
you'd actually JTAC in this time. Was that back to to the same theater or to a different theater? Yeah, so that was to Afghanistan, um, RC East. So yeah, that was RC East. Um, so Kunar province area, that's like my, that's, that was like, if I talk about all my deployments, that's, that's the region right there. That's the, that's the little pocket of, of heaven slash hell that, um, that has a lot of good experiences as well. So um, RC East though, we were very kinetic in RC East. Uh, we were dropping a lot. Um, I, all right, so I, I, whenever I landed there, it was kind of like my little eye opener. I landed at Pop, Pop Bostic. Pop Bostic was like the most eastern um, Ford operating base uh, within uh, Afghanistan at the time, around the pack border. And um, it was a pretty neat area. It's just that when I was in Iraq, I didn't see all these mountains before. And then here I'm going to this area with rough mountains. It was, it was kind of an odd thing. These all these bases, you know, they're pretty much inside of a bowl. <laughs> You're surrounded <laughs> by mountains. On multiple ends, it's like, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I've, I've read this before that you're not supposed to do this, and why the heck are yeah. we doing this? But it is what it is. So yeah, everything in our tactics says take the high ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was always the odd thing. Um, but obviously, utilizing casts, um, you know, it definitely helped out tremendous, tremendously. It's kind of like we were put at a disadvantage. The only way to, to gain an advantage is to to use assets to go out farther and to see things behind mountain ridges, you know, mountain, mountains and stuff. So. Um, that's when that's when it kind of like clicked in my head. It's like, okay, now, now I actually understand the importance of why we're really here, um, and the actual application of cash and how and you know how important it can really be. You know how it can really save the battlefield. How it can shape the battlefield. You know with that. But yeah, I was at Fab Bostic for like not even a week and a half, and then they sent me a little bit farther uh, farther south um, to a place called Katmani. Um, if people were to Google Katmani, it's kind of like a place where you go to earn your combat infantry badge slash off Purple Heart. <laughs> and I didn't want my purple heart. <laughs> so that was, you know, that was kind of like, uh, that was again, an eye opener. I, I arrived there on a helicopter and um, I just did a, a, a JTAC swap. My buddy walked out there with his uh, assault pack and another ruck. And he was like, all right, dude, the talks over, uh, over there behind those Tesco barriers and uh, we'll see ya. It's like, all right. So, you know, you go over there and meet the ground commander within like an hour of being there. We're already getting, um, we're already getting hit with indirect fire and stuff. So, um, either way, my first, uh, my first bomb drop was like literally the first day that I was, I was, uh, at Katmani and, um, it was a danger close mission, um, because the, it was, it was a cop. So it's a really, it's company size base, it's really small. And, um, yeah, dropped a bomb, dropped basically a 2000 pound bomb within roughly about 300 meters outside of the gate. And, um, that was, uh, on my first time I've really ever experienced, I've dropped live bombs, but not, not that close and not that big, you know, training yeah. you have minimal safe distance all that stuff you know so seeing that was like holy cow um once the smoke cleared i finally realized i actually did hit the intended target that i you know i actually predicted and um i was like wow that was insane yeah, <laughs> yeah <it> was, <laughs> you know the dust is coming coming off the talk and stuff like that you know off the talk uh wall uh ceiling and stuff like that the walls are kind of like crumbling a little bit seems like and it's like holy cow this is this is freaking awesome <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, that's a that's a welcome if a, for sure, dude. What's what was your favorite platform? Obviously, you're out there yeah, in the so, east. Guys need yeah, legs so to my, get to you. Yeah, so my now you yeah, my favorite platform, which they don't have anymore, is the Kiowa. Um, it's not even it wasn't even a JTAC platform actually. I'm a big, you know, even being a JTAC, um, obviously there's this big push towards uh, precision and all that stuff. I get it, uh, but from a from being in um, multiple, you know, troops in contact situations and stuff, um, in my opinion, um, dealing with dudes out in the open, which is a lot of what we had in main flight positions, 
um, it's it's rotary wing. It's um, you know, whether it's CCA or we call it cash, you know, depending on which uh, which uh, platform it is. Um, rotary wing, honestly, um, the the Kiowa that we had, it was a CCA five line. Um, and these dudes were, I'm like, it was like a Vietnam era aircraft, and these dudes would just lay fucking waste. I'm like, they would just go mental. Um, maybe they would put grenades inside of mason jars, you know, pull the pin, and they would just push the mason jar out there, and it would, it would shatter, you know. And they'd be over dudes shooting with their their M4 and stuff. It was it was insane. Yeah. And uh, what I liked about us so much that is they were so close and personal. Um, the Apache, we had the Apache as well out there. Um, Apache is a great platform, but from my perspective, still with that, it's a, it's more of a standoffish because they have the they have the capability to do it with the pads and all that stuff. So it's more standoffish. When I saw the Kiowas, I mean, these guys were they were in the heat of the battle. <laughs> it was insane. So um, that was you know in the East, that was when it comes to a platform, that was my favorite platform, just because of the the per, the, the close and personal um, connection with it. Um, when it comes to an actual cast platform, I would say uh, A-10s without a doubt, um, A-10s. And from what I just heard, too, based on uh, Air Force times in the U.S., uh, they're going to be keeping the A-10 around 2040. So it's good news there Yeah, because they don't have a replacement for it. So, yeah, no, no. yeah. I love all the, the, the little cartoons that are starting to come out of them with the X-Wing on them, like they're a Star Wars fighter. They're like, the A-10 is going to be around forever. We're just going to keep upgrading <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The uh, so obviously you rotate back yeah. and uh, you move sort of up through the the scaling. What at what point do you start becoming an instructor? Yeah, so I became an instructor after my uh, my third deployment to um, Afghanistan, and uh, I got back from got back from RC South. Uh, I was at Kandahar, and it was kind of like it was actually my. I kind of just asked for it. Um, one, of, one of my NCOICs that was down there with me, I let him know before. I was like, hey, when we get back, he's, you know, I was, I was um, in garrison with him. Let him know, I was like, hey, I, I'm interested in becoming an instructor. Um, of course, with us, we, like, there's only so many instructors you can have within a, like a U.S. Air Force squadron or an evaluator or whatnot. And by me just basically asking, you know, um, by me just asking, he was like, all right, he's like, yeah, we'll work on it. And um, whenever I got back, within the first six months I was back, they put me through like the pipeline. And I actually went through a like, actual instructor school um, in, uh, in um, Las Vegas. So it wasn't like it was done in house or anything like that. A lot, a lot, like, a lot of things nowadays, from my understanding, like people are doing it in house, you know, within their units. Um, but mine was an actual course, which is pretty cool. So um, yeah, anyway, I went there and had a really good time. Got on. Um, um, I was like, uh, from I got the certificate. I was like the top, the top dude that was there for the uh, instructor portion. So that was pretty cool. I was, a, I guess, I'm a pretty decent instructor. But I, um, I think a lot of guys. I think just by me asking, just letting them know that I wanted wanted to do this. I've, I've noticed, especially in the JTAC career field, um, a lot of people don't really want to transition into the instructor role because you kind of feel like you're out of the fight, um, and you're just, you know, you're just training your building up dudes to go and, you know to go lay waste and um you're not getting paid for it and it, it, it does require more work and stuff but at the end of the day in the bigger picture of things um you're way more of an asset uh you know not only to your unit but just to the world i guess you would say and creating more for jtags versus you just you know worry about yourself so you um i actually personally think too after i became a jtag instructor my my jtag capability increased tenfold i um I, I've, I've developed an ability to where I can I can think more forward or think about multiple courses of action is you're thinking for the student, you know, in case if he does something wrong, how am I going to adjust 
to where you're kind of, you know, driving him to meet your, your objectives. And um, as an instructor, I, I've developed that ability, whereas at JTAC, you're kind of just focused on, on maybe one particular mission or one particular nine line, you know, and just, uh, yeah, anyways, that's, that's what I've seen. And um, to be able to kick more dudes out the door seems to be more of a, you know, more of a strategic importance, I would say, than just being a, a, just a JTAC, if you have the ability to become one. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a myth that we could easily dispel, like, is when, you know, don't become an instructor because you don't get to, like, go down range. Well, you know, it's a massive honor to be able to, you know, create a new JTAC or provide somebody with the, the training that they require to go away. And, you know, one can make 20. Whereas, you know, if you just stay in the pipeline, yeah. you're just one JTAC. Um, so I would encourage anybody that has the, you know, the will to do it to get themselves up into an instructor rating and, and try and support the, the whole community and, and push that forward mate i know obviously you're in the instructor element and you've been around the world as an instructor not just um you know in the us what does it look like while you're still serving uh working with other nations and training with other nations as an instructor how do you find that yeah i find it um i actually find it pretty like i guess you would say beneficial um the ability to, I guess, get into the minds of a lot of different, you know, a lot of different countries and, and learning their learning their capabilities and how to basically, like you're starting with an open book basically, and you're trying, you're basically creating something that, um, I mean, the ability to create something really special that can not only support the country or that region, but also support, for, for me, it'd be the U.S., I guess you would say. Um, we've kind of, from what I've seen, kind of gone into more in an advisory role, military-wide. Um, so whether you're active duty or, or a private contractor or whatnot, um, have like you know, if you have the ability to to instruct and train these other countries um, that are obviously um, families, um, if you have the ability to do that and, and train them to basically take care of themselves, you you take some of that responsibility off of you and the community. To where I mean, it's much needed. We've been we've been fighting out for 20 years. Um, and you, we can't, like, we can't police the whole world, you know? And, um, so at least that's my, that's my idea. And to, and to actually, to actually treat, train these guys the right way, then all you're doing is building up your force and no different, like a, let's say, uh, an army, you know, special forces guy, you know, Green Beret, same thing. They go in and they build up these forces or whatnot, and they fight on behalf of the, the, the bigger power. So that's kind of, that's kind of the concept. It's more of a strategic way of doing things. It's not really all about you or your, you know, your little small community. It's about, it's about creating this, this big picture, I guess you could say, this big ally. So, um, yeah, it has, it has a, yeah, from what I've seen though, I'm like, there's, it's frustrating sometimes, of course, but it's also, I mean, it's also very rewarding because every now and then you get a couple of really, like really good dudes out of the whole thing. You're like, holy cow, it's, you know, it's pretty awesome. This guy, you know, speaks English, he has a secondary language and he's controlling, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty damn cool. You know, as an instructor, it's pretty neat to see. So. Yeah. I like that. Um, what was the biggest change for you in, in the time that you were in the service? What did you see like that changed the most from beginning to the end of your service? Yeah. So one of the things that I've noticed a lot um, from beginning to end uh, was the, <laughs> there is a, uh, things are sugar coated now a lot. Um, yeah, do you know what I mean by that? Like things are, um, things are preached up. It seems like in the military, these other communities, you got to be careful about what you say. You know, you can't talk to some people, you know, certain ways. Um, the, uh, it just seems like we've, we've 
and some regarding the last 10 years that I actually served active duty that we we, we started to drift pretty far away from, um, uh, what do you call it? I guess just, you know, focusing on the mission became more about, you know, um, more about different genders and all that stuff like that. <laughs> so, uh, and it, it was, diff it was difficult. It was hard to find, it was hard to find the balance. Um, but, uh, we have we have some really good do some good leadership still um, that are that are within that are still trying to you know fight the big fight or whatnot. But from the Air Force perspective, um, it's uh it's just interesting. It's changed a lot. Yeah, uh, I, we went we went we went from like a very cool like it was my it's still cool as hell now. I mean compared to like the rest of the world. <laughs> but um, from what I you know where it was ten years ago to now, um, yeah, ten years ago it was like it was. It, it was like a dream. I mean, it was a dream, like a wet dream, straight up. It was, it was so cool. I can only imagine 20, 30 years ago, like what you, I guess, what you could get away with, what you could do, how much fun you could really have. You know, um, now it's, it's very rigid, it's very, very strict. So it makes it a little bit difficult. Yeah, I think uh, it speaks to the individual as well. In as much as, you know, you need to be, you know, ready to be teachable, and you know, you're going to get harsh debriefs, and your instructors, you know maybe they're delivering things the right way or the wrong way in your perception, but it's just because they care. And, uh, you know, yeah. from an instructor perspective, you know, look at yourself and say, am I delivering in this in a way where it's actually landing? And as a, you know, someone listening, taking the debrief, it's just like, try and, uh, you know, realize that the passion that's coming through is, you know, they want you to be better. So whether they're delivering it in a way that you're, you're used to or not, it's just pure, it's passion for the, for the, the subject. Yeah. What was um... you mentioned the uh, the debrief as well, and and uh, that's that's something that um you know we had a lot of we had a lot of pushback initially um, with the whole debrief and uh, the debrief you know as even if it takes an hour two three hours um is we have you know back home in the air force we have like in our community we have like two three hour debrief sometimes um they're breaking it down um in the increments based on time and all that stuff and it, it's pretty, it can be pretty exhausting, but like you said, you know, there's a lot of takeaway out of it and you can bring your, your younger guys in there. And um, I mean, the overall idea is just to grow, you know, on, on lesson learned really is what it comes to. And yeah, that, that's been a big shift um, before it wasn't really, it wasn't really much of a debrief. Now it's, it's a huge debrief and you learn so much out of it. It's crazy. Yeah. If you had, uh, you know, three pointers for a guy starting the pipeline now, not stuff that he's going to learn because obviously you're like, right, we're going to teach you this. Don't worry about that. But like, make sure you're ready to go day one with these three things and, and you know, you'll be successful. Yeah. I would just say, obviously, you know, being physically, being physically prepared, um, you know, and that means whatever the, whatever the minimum criteria is, um, it's not about getting, getting away with the minimum requirements really. Um, set yourself up to where you can at least do double the numbers. Um, that's probably number one. It's all about making it, making it easier for yourself, you know, um, because the pipeline, you know, pipeline, at least not maybe for the JTAC role, but for the tacky, tacky side, it's, it's no joke. Uh, any special job really requires you to do, to excel um, physically and stuff. But um, yeah, I would say do the double, do double the numbers physically, um, mentally wise, um, just be, just remain flexible. Uh, remain flexible. Um, you don't really have to grip onto one dude's opinion on things. Uh, just, you know, keep open, keep some open-mindedness, learn from every, you know, everyone. And then you can kind of keep the individual tools from people and put in your little toolkit, you know, so just remain flexible um, and, you know, adaptable. And then uh, the, the last thing is, uh, I guess, just, just stay positive really is what it comes down to, you know. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of changes that in, in the, the big wheel of the military, um, the, the, big, uh, the big machine of the military, um, there's a lot of things that are out of your control. 
And um, yeah, I'm gonna just just stay positive. You know, if they if they tell you to sh they tell you to show up, you know, an hour before your, your you know this meeting or whatnot, deal with it. Just shut up and color. <laughs> you know, it's, it's there's some some things that are just so um, blown out of proportion by younger guys. They're like, oh, this is stupid or whatnot. Yeah, just just stay positive. I'm mean, really it. You know, you uh, you create your own life by your thoughts, really. So uh, that's yeah. what it really comes down to. So if you, if you're looking back on your military career, what's your, like your favorite funny dip, you know, the most unexplainable thing that you saw where you'd be like, every time it comes to mind, you know, you just, you know, cracks you up. Yeah, the, probably the, all right, I have a good one. So when I left, um, when I left Florida at my TACB schoolhouse, um, I flew, obviously my first station was Hawaii. So I had to, I had to go to uh, survival school first. And while I was at survival school, I had, um, after I graduated survival school, since I was technically going what they consider overseas, Oconus, to Hawaii, um, I, had, I had to stay in, at my survival school, even though I graduated for like another three weeks. From, just based on like whatever the Air Force instruction was, like I had to wait until my new, um, until the month that I had to show up in my new duty station. So I was basically just there working out and stuff, just chilling. And so whenever I... Um, Whenever I left left uh, survival school, I was technically three weeks, I guess you would say, behind, and my leadership didn't really get it. It's like, hey, go check the Air Force instruction, but they were real. I think they were just really confused on like, why, why me, why specifically me. So, I uh, I showed up. Uh, I left a uh, I left an Air Force base in California, flew over to Hawaii, and the first day that I landed in Hawaii, I turned my phone. I turned my phone. I was getting ready to touch uh, touch ground. I messaged my buddy. I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm here. You know, I'm, I'm here. I'm ready to go, you know, get picked up. He's like, all right, bro, I'll be there in a couple of minutes. And I land the flight line and, uh, basically OSI, which is like the air forces equivalent of like the FBI show up. No, no, <laughs> they show up and they're like, they can't, they come on board and they asked me to get, get on the ground. All right. They asked me to get on the ground and where's my ID. It's like, Oh my, my ID's in my bag. And they check my, they check my ID and all that stuff like that. Like what, you know, they're asking me questions like, what are you doing? And they're like, uh, again, I'm, I'm assigned here. It's my first duty station. It's really confusing. So long story short, all that really came out of it is that they were that where I came from, they didn't check me in the right way through whatever process. And that was considered a stowaway on the aircraft. So they didn't know who I was and like what I was doing there. Yeah, it didn't even make any sense. And um, I was there. I was there in like their office. Um, basically, they were, you know, they were interrogating me, like, you know, who lets you on the flight? All this stuff like that. I'm like, what are you talking? Like, I I have orders to this location. You can check my military ID card. Like, I I have the, a printable thing out of my orders. They're like, yeah, and they're trying to get all this information. And since I just left survival school. I was going through like I was going through like the whole uh, interrogation training that I went through. <laughs> so they, you know, two hours goes by and they didn't really get much out of me, you know. And uh, it was uh, pretty comical. But finally, my leadership kind of just stepped in two hours later. And they, uh, I got pulled out. So that was like my. That was my, my. I thought it was like a joke, dude. Honestly, yeah, I, I would have. That's what I would have been. I'd be like, someone is having my like someone's playing yeah. a prank on me here. This is like new guy getting a prank pulled on him or something like that. Yeah. yeah, just come out of CS school. Yeah, no, I thought it was a joke because we had, you know, back in the day, we we had this thing like where you get rolled up, you know, um, you know, you get rolled up and get a, they they make it drink and beat you up or whatever, you know, it's not like fun and games, but just to just to check you in basically, you know, just to mess with you. 
And um, they don't do that stuff anymore. But back then, that was a thing. They, you know, they'd really mess with you. And um, I thought that was part of the whole. I thought it was. Like, I thought it was all tattoos. Like, I thought it was like all a joke. Apparently, it wasn't. So yeah, yeah, that was pretty interesting. So obviously, you've got out and you, you're you've been, you're in the civilian sector now. What uh, you know, what yeah. does that look like? What what sort of things would you touching points would you like cover for anyone coming? out now or going trying to look to move into that sector you know what advice would you give or what stories would you tell them yeah i think um advice wise is just um yeah i'll go back i'll, I'll reflect back on my time when i was transitioning i was um i was going through a while i was going through a divorce plus i was also planning on leaving the military so the biggest thing i can say was it was a very scary it was a very scary time for me um I uh, probably one of, one of the most nerve-wracking times of my life. Um, tra just transitioning, as easy as it might seem like it is, um, you you don't. I'm like it's the unexpected, I guess. The unexpected, the unknown, um, and you kind of have like this, this this dependency on the community slash um, the military. I mean, you really do. And um, whenever I was transitioning, going through all that time, um, yeah, I, I would just say uh, when you make a decision, when you decide that you want to transition, whether it's in the contracting world, the private sector. Or you know, going after your passion, starting a business, whatever is, just make the decision and stick with it. You're going to have a lot of things, whether it's leadership, and you know, I think they're overall looking out for your best interest. But whether it's leadership, family, or whatnot, make the decision that's right for you as an individual, um, and and just go through with it. Um, because uh, I, I'm like, for right now, from what I see, uh, there there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's uh, the grass is green on the other side, you know. So. Um, but that might be me as an, you know, as an individual, my perspective. Um, but yeah, that's the biggest thing is like, just, uh, just make a decision and go through with it. That's really all you can do. Um, because if not, then you're, you're in limbo. You don't know what to expect and you're going to make a really poor decision. And so once you make the decision, just follow through, man. That's it. Yeah. No and, um, and, and from, yeah, from the private sector wise, I'm like, I, uh, my hour wise, my, my hours are better. Um, pays a little bit better as well. I get to grow a beard. You know, I know it might be something so small, but you know, it's, uh, I, I get to make, I get to make my own choices. You know, that's really what it is. And it's, it is, it's nice. It is. You've, you've earned it. Everyone's earned it, you know, after you're done. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, um, when you were a JTAC and you're in the military, the only thing you would, you would drink would be obviously black coffee and whiskey, but has that carried on into your uh, civilian life? Are you, uh, have you, become even more of a coffee snob no i um i might drink two i drink two cups of coffee a day sometimes three you know i, I don't really need it I, I don't have like a dependency on it i just do because i like the taste yeah <laughs> um i uh, i drink on and off uh, i kind of go through like stages uh, like right now during this whole this whole uh, pandemic thing of course like i'll dr i'll have a drink or two throughout the day um just out of fun honestly i don't do it to like wash away my you know, my anxiety or anything like that. I just do it just, just to have fun. You know, I just like, just enjoy it. Um, but yeah, not honestly, I, I not really a whole lot has really changed. I, um, I wasn't really a, like a huge, huge drinker before. And I think I've actually gone, like, I guess gone down a little bit on the drinking, uh, surprisingly. Um, so I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be in a, in a, in a really healthy environment and around a, a lot of really good people that are doing really well. So it's really helped me. It's really helped me transition, I guess, you know, um, is, is is that so but yeah still still coffee i am um, you're you're uh you probably like this but i'm a huge gin and gin and tonic guy now huge 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 fan of gin and tonic it's like my favorite drink is there uh is there a specific uh, brand that you'll let uh, you'll try and chase down i know obviously you have to sort of think ahead being where you are 
about what you want. <laughs> no, it's actually a, you'd be surprised. It's not a, it's not what you think. It's no, it's normal life here. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it, it's normal. It's uh, it's not what you what you think. I'm I'm like drinking or whatnot. Like you can go anywhere and drink. You know, you can you can uh, well, you can't drink outside publicly, but you know, you know all the bars and all the hotels offer it. Um, you can buy it at the local liquor store. Liquor store. I have one not even like two kilometers from me. So, um, yeah, it's it's uh, everything I get back in the states or let's say in the UK or whatnot, it's exactly the same where I'm at right now. So yeah, it's uh. I don't really have a preference. I all I know is that I was I whenever I moved here a couple of years ago, I was here for uh, the the Red Bull Air Race that happened annually. Amazing. And um, I had a I had a British advisor, um, British uh, uh, advisor that I went to his apartment to go watch the air race from his apartment down on the water. And I go up there and he's like, Hey, mate. He's like, You uh, he's like, You want something to drink? I was like, Yeah. What do you got? And he's like, uh, He's like. You want a gin and tonic? Like I was like, bro, I've never even had one, but I'll, I'll take one. And dude, that was like two and a half years ago, and I've been hooked. I can't. I, I'm telling you, it's the best. It's the best drink out there. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely yeah. a summertime drink, and uh, you're in like pure summertime, twenty all year round. So yeah, makes sense. If uh, if yeah, I was pretty to much, yeah, pretty much, pretty much, yeah. So desert island, JTAC. I'm going to put you on a desert island and I'm, a, I'm going to give you a radio and a, and a set of ansils. What other three items do you take with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, three items would probably be map, compass, and a map, like a pencil, basically. Map, map compass, you can't write anything without a pencil, so map, <laughs> compass, and a pencil, they range up like that. So, uh, and then the compass course, I can do a resection. I don't need the GPS, I can do a resection or intersection, but um, got to have a map as well. Uh, that's like the foundation thing, you know, with all this technology and the transition, you know, for all this technology, you still fall on your basic, your, your basic skill set, which is mapping compass. Roger so, that. Yeah, it. I like it. Yeah. Straight in there with the answers. Knew what, knew, knew where you were going with that one. Mate, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. If you had one closing thought across the whole community, what would that closing thought be? Yeah, the closing thought is, uh, I mean, you guys picked the right choice. Um, the overall military will try to say, you know, what what can you become outside the military of being JTAC qualified? I'm like, there's a ton, there's a ton of options. And I looked at what all these people were telling me um, that were in the military course, and they would they would all become a, a private contractor after the military. Like nine times out of ten, doesn't matter what, what career they were in, they were going in the private sector. So that being said, um, this community is not diminishing; it's it's just growing, um, and it's it's outside of your borders as well. So uh, I would just say, when you get in, when you get in the community, um, I, I guess just just tie yourself down and enjoy the ride, and try to try to create you know the best JTAG not only for yourself but for the community. You got, you got so much to give. Yeah. Thank you for your time, mate. I really really appreciate you coming on. All right, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen. All our podcasts sit on the Nine Foot Night Killer Collective, Soul Feed, Forge Not Made, and the JTAP podcast. Take some time, maybe listen to one of the other podcast series that you're not listening to, and give us your feedback. All these things only happen because of the Nine Foot Night Killer community, and we really appreciate them. Thank you, everybody, for listening.